What if what you think you know about nutrition and what you were led to believe is actually making you ill? Wouldn't you want to know the findings from the man who did one of the largest and most comprehensive studies of nutrition ever conducted? Buckle on up, for what you're about to hear could conceivably add quality years to you and your loved ones' lives. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. I am pumped up today and extremely excited because of the guest that we have on our show. Not only am I excited about this guest, but this guest is helping me to transform my entire lifestyle. Dr. Dean Ornish, author of Dr. Dean Ornish's program for reversing heart disease and love and survival, says everyone in the field of nutrition science stands on the shoulders of T. Colin Campbell, who is one of the giants in the field. Jeff Nelson, president of VegSource.com, has called Dr. Campbell the Einstein of nutrition. John Robbins, author of Diet for a New America and the Food Revolution, says if you heed the counsel of this outstanding guide, meaning the China study, your body will thank you every day for the rest of your life. Dr. Colin Campbell is widely recognized as a brilliant scholar, a dedicated researcher, and a great humanitarian. He is a man of humility and human death, a man whose love for others guides his every step. His only agenda is to help you live as informed and healthy a life as possible. Dr. Campbell directed the most comprehensive study of diet, lifestyle, and disease ever done with humans in the history of biomedical research, more commonly known as the China Study, which is also the title of his book, which reveals the startling implications this study reveals for diet, weight loss, and long-term health. Without further ado, welcome to the Motivation Show, Dr. Campbell. Thank you, and I can say, all I want to say is, wow. Uh, <laughs> certainly nice to have uh, lots of friends like that. Um, also, there's a few folks who are not so friendly with this message, to say the least. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been quite a journey. I've been, <clears throat> I got involved in this now over 60 years ago as a profession, as a professional. So I've been around a while, um, and uh, the journey has been fun. It's, uh, I've really uh, enjoyed working with so many different kinds of people, especially students and colleagues <coughs> in science. Excuse me. That's <coughs> my throat here. Sounds most like my age, I guess. I don't know. But in any case, no, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, we've learned a lot of things. I learned things that... Uh, I never thought I would uh, be ever saying or believing. Um, so I'm, I'm one of the, the uh, people, one of the members of our, of our big population, just you know, subjected to the same kind of uh, stuff that everybody else is. But it, you know, the science is really very exciting in this area. There's a lot of promise here. And, well, you uh, grew up on a farm, right? And you are your typical. Uh... Yeah, I did. Yeah, your typical breakfast uh, started with uh, eggs and bacon and all this interesting stuff, right? It sure did. Absolutely. That was our meal of the day because uh, we actually had to get up early in the morning to milk the towels. And so we didn't have breakfast until after we were done. So I always look forward to the breakfast because that was, like, as I say, that was the best meal of the day. Bacon and eggs, you're right. Sometimes ham, that sort of thing, so. And milk. Lots of milk. Right? Yep. Absolutely. And milk and eggs. 
<laughs> yeah, that was this was standard American diet back then. We all believed that that was the thing that was going to keep us healthy and sustain us. What I really admire about you and what you talk about in your book is you actually acknowledge and you thank the naysayers uh, in your introduction. You know, the people who have gone up against you. Uh, and that definitely uh, is a man of humility who can actually thank those people. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, it's true. I, I mean, I wasn't making it a, a joke or anything. I, I, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, I've had quite a life of uh, pushback, uh, to say the least, and some of it's been really quite serious. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I learned a lot of things uh, just because of that, because it, it caused me to start asking questions. Why, for one thing, why are these people so hostile? You know, when I think I'm talking, you know, it's common sense. And of course, that teaches you some lessons. You learn why that happens, and and uh, so it goes. I mean, I, I I don't mind critics. Sometimes they're not very nice, but uh, I've always enjoyed in, in science in a more formal setting. I always enjoyed uh, enjoyed the debate, if you will. Um, that's been kind of fun. So yeah, I guess I'm. But being on the farm, you're out, you know, in the fields and working sometimes, a lot of times, in fact, by yourself. And you run into a problem, whether it's a, something going wrong with the machine or something else. And you have to kind of figure out how to do things all by yourself. And it's quite a quite a thing to do. And so when I left the farm and my father, and my grandfather, and all the way back, they'd all been farmers. And, you know, in the farm, my, my dad uh, had did not have any more than two or three years education, actually. He was an immigrant from Northern Ireland. So, yeah, we were a family who were, I was the first to go to college, uh, let alone graduate school. And and uh, so I, I never lost, you know, my love of my life, <laughs> you know, early, early in my life, that is nature, just being outdoors. Uh, and that teaches you some truthfulness and some humility, I guess. So then, I don't know if that's a good answer or not, but that's the truth. That's what it is. Um, <laughs> so in but, your but book, science, yes. go ahead, please yeah. finish. No, I, I say I've, I've really grown to uh, actually be quite an enthusiast just for the concept of science. What is it? Yeah, how do we go about doing science? What does that mean? And so I thought a lot about that, have had to think a lot about it, uh, because in today's world, at least in the area of science that I've been in, they've not been performing very well. I'm talking about the, the world of medicine, especially the world of nutritional science. We haven't done a very good job on that end of things. And so it sort of forces one to go back and think, you know, where did we go wrong if we went wrong? And that's part of my life too. I'm writing another book right now. Uh, and I'm just about two thirds, maybe three quarters of the way through the book hope to have it out by the early part of the year. And I'm sort of just kind of tracing for myself, hopefully for the reader as well, what it was like to take, to run into some of these challenging questions and what you do about it. Because a lot of these questions that I had still have, are still, you know, with us. And so trying to bring my experience into that, to understand that perspective. Do we have a teaser yet and get to know what the title of that new book is going to be? Well, I, I say that's not really mean it's a, it's a tentative title because I think I'll have a better one. But it kind of illustrates the point. Um, the title I have at the moment is called Behind the Curtain. Uh, mm. And what I mean by that is I spent uh, 20 formal years, actually, and many more beside that, very much involved in national policy development especially in the area of food and health, both nationally and internationally. And so I spent a lot of time in Washington and elsewhere uh, working with senior policy officials and government leaders and that sort of thing. And I, so I, I got a pretty good feel. I, I was on a lot of expert panels and gave testimony before congressional hearings and that sort of thing. And I, I sort of, there was quite an opportunity to see how, if you will, uh, science is translated into public policy. And the kind of things I saw, I sometimes I wish I hadn't seen, <laughs> but but it really is, it's kind of behind the curtain. The public doesn't get to see some of these things. Uh, and because it, it's, uh, 
what, what we see in the lab, when we do that kind of thing, uh, it doesn't get translated to the public in the way that we'd like to see it done sometimes. Uh, I, I don't get too terribly excited about uh, government having the final say about things. Uh, I, I really, I know we need need government, but government uh, in collusion with with industry, if I could say those use those words, <laughs> uh, they create the, the message that the public gets, and the message, you know, which ought to be founded on you know facts and good science and that sort of thing, too often kind of skips over that part of it, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know tries to create a message that you know suits the status quo. And specifically suits the the uh, the folks who are making making money on ideas. Mm, I, yeah, I a little bit of an agenda. <laughs> yeah, there really is, and so behind the curtain, as far as telling my own personal experiences with that, in addition to you know trying to then understand better, you know, why do we end up in this situation? And I, part of the book is an old. Um, story that I had developed some years ago it's just on the history of this field. I spent a year at Oxford University in England <clears throat> back in the 80s, and at that time I was already seeing the kind of pushback that was coming. I'd already experienced some of it, and so I was just curious. You know, where where does all this hostility come from? And a lot of it was very hostile, especially in the fields of cancer, cancer research and nutrition research, and those are areas that I have spent my lifetime working in especially on the relationship of nutrition with cancer. And boy, talking about pouring gasoline on fire. Now, those, those two topics are you know, very personal uh, with most folks. And uh, to talk about the relationship between food and cancer is, uh, is a touchy subject, understandably. Of course. And so it also, you know, also at the same time, it's those two topics are pretty much ensconced into some very, very big industries, and they have their own views about what the way things should go. And so, and that's not exactly consistent with what the facts are. Uh, they're interested in, you know, making money, let's face it, uh, making wealth instead of health, if you put it that way. Uh, so, and that's what the book is about. Kind of got myself kind of excited about it again after I sort of can sit down now and kind of look back and try to sort out, you know, what were, what were the important things and what weren't in a sense and kind of actually to share that with the public see where it comes out. Well, speaking of cancer in your uh, book, the China study, you mentioned that the American cancer society says, if you are a male, you have a 47% chance of getting cancer and if you're a female, you fear you fare a little bit better, but you're still at a whopping thirty-eight percent. Those numbers really alarmed me when I read that. Um, that that is an astounding percentage, and that's enough to scare the bejesus out of most people. So I am up. Yeah, sure. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, those numbers are not mine, of course. I'm I'm citing in that case numbers that are put together from by some of the agencies you know, who collect that kind of information, but it's true. Um, I think, as I recall, those numbers also included uh, one kind of cancer, which is one of the most common, but not necessarily fatal, and that is skin cancer. Uh, you know, only about 2% of the people who get skin cancer actually die of the disease. So that's, uh, and so it begs the question, you know, how serious is really so-called skin cancer? And, uh, so those numbers are escalated a little bit that way, but not not that much. I mean, those are still big numbers um, for the rest of the cancers. It's the second leading cause of death in this country, has been for years, uh, heart disease being number one. Uh, but uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a problem. It's a really serious problem. And obviously, it's a very personal one, obviously, too. People want to have answers for that. They fear the disease. Uh, and unfortunately... Now, these days, the, there's a lot of confusion surrounding that disease. has been for a long time. And in this new book that I'm doing is trying to sort out, you know, where, where, how, how come we have so much confusion? I think, I think there's a possibility of uh, actually dealing with the disease in a rather different way, in a profoundly different way, 
than what is now practiced. And yeah, so those are big numbers. Yes, the public is uh, the public is very concerned about the problem. And um, I mean, it, it's, you know, here we have this disease that people fear and they're worried about it and so forth and so on. I'm not sure they need to be worried that much, but that's the way it is. And yet, when they turn to trying to find solutions for the problem, by gosh, there's just a lot of a lot of confusion. And uh, I don't think that needs to be. Uh, and so I want to talk about that in the book as well. I think there's far better ways to think about this problem than the way we're doing it now. Uh, and it's, it's kind of, in a sense, people kind of wait around in a sense, you know, fearfully in a sense for you know, the day when they learn something like that and then they get, you know, rather, rather bothered. They don't quite know what to do, but they're very... Uh, at that point in time, they're very vulnerable. Patients are vulnerable. They listen to authorities. They, you know, basically, understandably so. Uh, but the information that authorities are giving uh, is not nearly what it could be, in my view. And so, it's one of the one of the main topics I'm talking about in the book. Yeah, one of the uh, fascinating things I read in your book was the role of protein in cancer. <laughs> Uh, and you did a, some research with uh, one of the most toxic uh, uh, chemicals, uh, and then you applied uh, uh, different percentages of protein, one at 20% and one at 5%. And can you tell the audience what the results were of that study? Yeah, that uh, came out of uh, uh, some work I was doing in the Philippines right in the very beginning of my career. I was a professor at Virginia Tech University at the time, and we had a contract with the State Department to uh, work in the Philippines to organize a nationwide program of feeding malnourished children. That was one of our research efforts. I say one of ours, actually my senior colleague who was the head of the department and myself were the two who were doing this. And he's the one who really set it up. But in any case, we in the Philippines were working on this problem with the Department of Health in the Philippines working with these uh, malnourished and starving children. And we went there with the idea in mind that what these children in a poor country like that, what these children needed more than anything else is more protein. And, you know, I went along with that. Of course, my own graduate work was actually on uh, attempting to uh, encourage consumption of more protein. And by, by that, I meant high quality protein, which is animal based. So that was uh, what most people believe in the public and what science they accepted. And so we were going to make sure these kids got enough protein as one of the efforts in that, in that nationwide program. But then I saw something that was uh, rather startling. It seemed like there are few families who didn't have enough protein. It's just an impression in a sense. Um, they seem to have the children who are more likely to get a certain kind of cancer. So all of a sudden this stark fact was staring us in the face. I mean, more protein, more cancer kind of thing, which sounded kind of crazy. Uh, and most people think the protein is coming from animal foods, of course, and most of it does. Um, and then there was another study in India at the time, laboratory animal study, uh, looking at the question concerning the effect of uh, protein, in this case it was animal protein, on the growth of cancer in these animals who were actually exposed to a very potent carcinogen, as you said before. And so the study was organized. They start with a carcinogen that starts the cancer, and then these two groups were fed either 5% or 20% protein. 5% being on the low end of things, 20% on the high end. But it's right, that's the range within which people tend to consume uh, protein. Uh, all the humans are more like 10 to 20%. But in any case, um, try, I, the, the, those researchers came out, and it was kind of an obscure journal at the time, but I caught my attention because I had myself sort of was getting this kind of impression just, you know, working in the, in the project we were working in. So I came, but the researchers didn't even believe their own research. They went back and did some other studies to try to prove the opposite, and they thought they did. But in any case, I came home and got a, we had to face that question. And so I got a grant from the National Institutes of Health uh, to study it in more depth. You know, is it really true that, higher protein consumption to lead to more cancer. And that, that project lasted for the next 27 years with 
funding from NIH, so it was all funded by the National Institutes of Health. And it gave us a chance to look into this question. Does, is it really true that high-protein consumption can actually turn on cancer? And the protein we used was an animal-based protein. It was uh, the main protein of cow's milk, which for me was kind of ironic, I guess, having been raised on a dairy farm. Uh, and partly we were in that business in order to make sure people get that good food, especially with its protein content. But here was being shown that uh, milk protein, when fed at 20%, turned on the cancer. Wow. If it's fed at 5%, no cancer. Wow. Both sets of animals were exposed to the carcinogens. So it was a big effect, a huge effect. But then, uh, and so we showed that and published it, et cetera. Uh, but then we turned our attention to some other things. I wanted to learn more about, you know, is this really true? How does this work kind of thing? And one of the things we learned early on was that uh, we could, when we released experimental animals, when we gave them the 20% protein diet, the cancers grew well. When we switched the diet to a low protein or 5% protein diet, we turned the cancer off. And so we got to a point where we could actually turn on and turn off cancer very readily, very quickly, just by changing the level of protein intake. So, wow, this is incredible. Mm. Uh, so then got into some research, too, of understanding or trying to understand you know, what were the so-called um, explanations or explanatory mechanisms that we sometimes say in science, you know, which, which kind of enzyme is involved and which is this, which that. And so we started looking for so-called mechanisms to explain this stuff. Now, and in the meanwhile, I'm still somewhat doubtful, uh, not really sure that we're looking at the right thing here, but... When we started looking for so-called mechanisms, every time we looked for one, we found one, which led to a really, I have to say, probably one of the most significant observations of my career. And that was, um, there's no such thing as a single mechanism accounting for something like that. You know, as a, especially we're talking about a single nutrient, in this case, protein, or single outcome, cancer, etc. There's no such thing as a single mechanism which is the foundation, quite frankly, for the entire drug industry, that presumption of looking at things very simply like that. What we learned was that there's a whole host of so-called mechanisms, and um, they tend to work together in synergy. It's, it's a really an amazing idea. I don't know whether it strikes the public as, as that being that exciting, but uh, in the area of medicine and science, it's a really big deal. And so that led to some... Uh, further studies, understanding how do things work together, what other nutrients are involved, you know, what kind of food are we talking about, what kind of diseases uh, are involved in all this, this kind of thing. And so after some years, lots of publications, a lot of students and that sort of stuff, I finally arrived at a point where I changed my view uh, quite substantially on the whole subject of nutrition. And now I think I understand better why nutrition is not very well understood by the public. I mean, a lot of interest is not part of the public in nutrition, obviously. Uh, and a lot of people have ideas of what they think they, nutrition means and what kind of food they think they should eat. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we're living in a world of confusion. And so you start asking yourself questions, you know, why, why so? I, I think we have some very good pictures now of what nutrition really is, what it can do, and it's truly amazing. But the fact of the matter is that the whole science of nutrition, whether it's about protein or vitamins or fiber or whatever you want to name, uh, nutrition as a science is not taught in a single medical school in the United States. Amazing. And so this means that doctors who are our leaders in a sense, at least in taking care of our health, this is who we turn to. We look to them for advice, but they're not being taught this. Um, and when I say not being taught, I, and there are a few medical schools that, yes, they'll offer an elective, maybe of uh, 10, 15 lectures or so, but that's not, that's not really learning the subject. And what they're teaching is not really the kind of nutrition I'm talking about. So a lot of schools just flat out don't teach it. So doctors are not getting trained in this very, very important topic, number one. Number two... Um, you know, when doctors are getting reimbursed for their services, uh, that usually is keyed to, uh, you know, what, what kind of disease they're working with, what kind of the, the conditions they're, they're working with with their patients. And 
they document their work, you know, according to medical medical specialties, if you will, you know, whether working on cancer, heart disease, or whatever, maybe procedures, and they, they, they have to document this, you know, for reimbursement. And there's something like 130 medical specialties that's recognized by the Medicare system, I think that's the latest number, something like that. Uh, 130 medical specialties, you know, one for this, that, and everything else. There's not one called nutrition. Wow. So therefore, the doctors, you know, have hit, first off, they're not trained in the area. And secondly, were they to be interested, and a lot of them do get interested, and they try to learn as much as they can, they don't really get reimbursed for their services. So you see the public is, the, the physicians who are, you know, looking, looking out for health, if you will, and good people that got involved in the business because they want to work with people and help them out, they're, they're just excluded from being able to use one medical science that matters the most. Hmm. What a shame. And so that's, yeah, that, that's a big story. So then you get to ask another question, why, how, why is that so? And uh, this book that I'm doing now, having gotten into the history quite substantially, actually, I think I've got an answer to that. Uh, and uh, that's when we were telling the book as well. Um, so the public, and, and to come back to the question we were talking about earlier on, you know, why there's so much confusion. I do understand why there's so much confusion. <clears throat> a, lot of, a lot of agendas. People are, you know, uh, talking about this topic in very spe- uh, specific ways. which is not helpful. They've got to look at more comprehensively. But in any case, um, the subject of nutrition as a science, as a medical science especially, uh, it's a, it's a, a glaring omission. It's just horrible. And so we got people not knowing what to do, how to handle it, what they can do for themselves. And so the book, the book that uh, I wrote with my son, who now is a physician, by the way, nice physician at a major medical center. Um, and we basically, um, we wrote the book and gotten pretty extraordinary feedback from it. Um, and, and I've been able to give a lot of lectures. I've given at least, I don't know, 900, I guess, or so since the book came out uh, all over the place. And I've spoken to at least 150 medical schools. So I'm, I'm really having some fun now sort of uh, interacting with my colleagues in political medicine as well as uh, to some extent in research community. Uh, I'm kind of keep my fingers crossed that maybe we'll get something out there so the public can begin to understand that this, this is a very, very important topic Yep. that uh, everyone should, should know something about. And I really appreciate your having me, having me on your show because this is the kind of thing that can be most helpful to talk about this. And, uh, I've probably gone on too long, but just all this chatter, but please go ahead and ask me some questions. Well, you know, Dr. Ornish, who I referenced earlier, also said that the China study is one of the most important books about nutrition ever written. And the New York Times called it the Grand Prix of Epidemiology. But there are listeners who are not actually familiar with the China study. Tell us exactly what the China study is. Yes. Uh, well, it's a little bit of confusion here, and, I, and I'll tell you why. But the China study is the name of the book. And it was, uh, as the name suggests, it seems like it focused on the work we did in China. When in fact, there's only one chapter in the book of the 18. There's one chapter specifically on a a project we did in China. So there's a little bit of discordance here. And that was not our choice of book titles at the time. And this is the first book I'd ever written. And we suggested a lot of uh, other names for the publisher to consider. And we had signed a contract, not knowingly, I guess, that he had the right to choose the title. And at that time, the, our work in China had been featured in the New York Times and USA Today and a few other places that just prior to that. And so it already, already is getting a reputation. <clears throat> so a publisher, uh, I think, took up the book somewhat reluctantly in the beginning, a little bit um, concerned he might not get a return on it, but the things we were saying. Uh, so he wanted to capitalize on using a name that was already out there. So he wanted to call it the China Study. Uh, after the project we were doing in China, which leads a lot of people to believe, unfortunately, that the book is all about the project we did in China. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we did do a project in China. There's no question about that. We did 
a massive big study in China with our Chinese colleagues. But it was a survey of sorts, and we learned quite a lot of things on that. It was a huge, you know, it was a Grand Prix in a sense, the New York Times said. But that wasn't the whole story. The book, The China Study, 18 chapters, one of which is the work in China, which is a very important part of it. Uh, but the rest of it really had to do with our my work in the laboratory on years prior to that, uh, as well as my work in the policy arena to some extent. So the China study is a kind of compilation of the information that we acquired from the laboratory and published uh, together with the information from China. Uh, and of course, uh, in the last third of the book, I'm talking about in the context of my experience on these uh, policy committees or expert committees, they call them, in an area of food and health policy. So the, the China study trying to pull together the story from these different perspectives. And uh, I guess I, we, we said at one time, uh, I wasn't sure that when we came out with the book in 2005, I wasn't really sure how well it would do. Our publisher certainly wasn't sure. Uh, he thought that if we got 3,000 first, and then he said, well, 8,000 or something like that, he said he'd be happy. And I thought, well, I'd be happy too if we got that many copies out there. <laughs> well, now it's been well over 2 million. And with the cookbooks that we've done and other things, it's probably close to 4 million copies of wow. the China study. And others have been translated into more than, the original books have been translated in more than 50 languages around the world. Hmm. So it's really had, had its own life. Um, and in the book, we, you know, we're, uh, we're kind of summarizing things. I'm rambling on about this, that, and a few other things. And it's finally just said, in, in a sense, to tell the reader, you don't have to believe me all this stuff. <laughs> just try it. And uh, I said that uh, in part, you know, thanks to not only the work we did, but thanks to some other colleagues uh, who were in the clinical area, uh, Dean Orish, Dr. Caldwell Esselton, Cleveland Clinic, brilliant guy, what he did with uh, his work. Um, and, and between Esselton and Ornish and also John McDougall. John McDougall is a very interesting man. He, he had been in this field for quite a long time, a doctor, worked in Hawaii, came back and worked in the States. And uh, he had a program there where he was using this whole food plant-based diet, if you will, on people with various assembly problems and having a lot of success. So I got to know the three of those people and and some others, another guy, Alan Goldhammer, I'd like to throw his name out there. He runs a fasting clinic in California. Um, and in a handful, I had gained a handful of really good friends, colleagues that uh, were doing this in a, in a way. They were doing it on their own, on their own time and from their own perspectives, but they were getting results that I thought, wow, this is pretty interesting. So when I said in the book, um, to the reader, I was really quite serious. I was a little bit confident in a way, saying, you know, you don't need to listen to all my scientific arguments, just try it yourself. And so they, people have done that, and now we see this. And now I've got uh, two sons who have been involved in this. Um, and my one son, the youngest son, who co-authored the book with me, is now a, a medical director of a program at the University of Rochester Medical Center, carrying on some of this kind of work there, the other son, the oldest son, who's uh, actually did a film called Plant Pure Nation, telling the story about this. He was educated in the area of economics and so forth. And he's got some really exciting programs going right now in regards to getting it out to the public. And, and uh, so um, what, the, what they're doing, what I'm referring to, they're doing these so-called immersion studies, whereby you can take a group of people and under doctor's care, I should say, I have to emphasize that. <clears throat> but taking a of people and just giving them this whole food plant-based diet, it can be very tasty, very nice, actually. And then just simply measure before and after. Um, you know, maybe after 10 days, maybe two weeks. You can see amazing changes just in that period of time. Wow. And so uh, now there's, and I did that. The original idea for myself came from uh, Dr. Esselton and Dr. Ornish. Um, they were taking their patients uh, with heart disease and uh, changed our diet and seeing the results they got. Uh, Dr. McDougall was doing that too in a broader sense. And so um, now this concept of immersion programs is caught hold. 
A lot of people are doing that. Physicians in particular, it's kind of nice. To, so, so I should say it's really nice. Uh, that, uh, and we can, so you can demonstrate. One can demonstrate for themselves, you know, for uh, just seeing what effect it can create for themselves. And uh, it's, uh, and you don't have to be really sick or anything like that to do that. That's not, that's not the point. People, most of us are not as well as we think we are, especially when you get into the 50s and 60s, uh, when your heart disease and cancer started to become more common. And so uh, if people will, you know, use this kind of diet for themselves, see what happens. Uh, once they get there to that point and see these remarkable benefits in rather short order, and of course they can see the medicine, particularly when they got a problem and it's resolved. Uh, then they tend to stay on it. So um, it's a, it really is a, a work in progress, I, I guess you could say, for sure is. Uh, it's, a, it's certainly a, an effect that uh, can be seen. It's easy to show. Almost everyone. I, uh, my oldest son had gotten to a point where he did, um, did, did the film, and that's the story in the film, Plant Nation. But um, he, he had gotten, he did, I think, six different groups during the course of the length of the film. The last group was 134 people. And so you do the measurements before and after, and you can see these kind of results. It was, they say, quite remarkable. Um, I'm probably being a little bit too generalized here, but that's, the fact of the matter is that's what we see. There's obviously always some individuals here and there who don't quite, can't quite do it that way, or... Maybe, you know, I, I don't know, we need, we need more research to continue that moving forward. It is exciting. Yeah, so um, in your book, you uh, mentioned that so many health issues come down to three things, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, <laughs> which I find to be quite yeah. uh, funny. And I am a person who uh, enjoys going out to eat, uh, you know, being in Manhattan. Uh, you've got restaurants everywhere. And Dr. Esselstyn, you know, he warned me about uh, the uh, three stooges of what I call <laughs> that you'll find in your food in restaurants, sugar, oil, and salt. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what those three stooges of food does to uh, our bodies and how we know this. Well, first off. Yeah, first off, in technical sense, I would suggest they are not foods. Uh, they're extracts of food. Uh, so uh, the whole concept, uh, the thing I'm talking about is uh, whole food. But by that, I mean sort of intact food, vegetables, fruits, grains, legumes, and so forth, and nuts, you know, to some extent. Um, the, when we eat the whole food as nature prepared it and find ways that we can cut it up and dice it, we can cook it, uh, quite frankly, um, and uh, we eat a lot of it sort of raw in the form of salads and fruits and so forth. We do that all the time anyhow. Uh, but uh, the main thing is use the whole food. Go, and we can't expect to get the same results if we take something out of the food, even if it comes from plants. If we get to take out the sugar from plants, and that's where it comes from, or if we take out the oil from plants, and we use a lot of it. We use a lot of oil and sugar. We call it added, that those are added nutrients, if you will. Salt, same thing. We, we, we take those, the sugar and the fat or the oil. Those two substances are quite addictive. And so we've become accustomed, as a whole society essentially, most people have become quite accustomed to um, having plenty of oil and sugar, if you will. It creates, enhances taste. Salt does the same thing. And so we've, uh, and the industry has taken advantage of that, of our weakness in a sense. And so we, you know, eat those foods that are high in fat and high in sugar and so forth. And we get into difficulties. Uh, the salt, the same thing. So uh, if we come back to the basics, let's talk about the whole plant food itself. Uh, and then we can use uh, spices and flavors of various kinds. And, and uh, you can make some wonderful meals that way. Are just using those foods, and what that means is not using the animal-based foods, um, dairy, eggs, milk, which is a big, big step. It's a hurdle for a lot of people. They don't want to believe it, but quite frankly, uh, we're all accustomed to those kinds of foods, 
um, not only say all, but most of us are really accustomed to consumption of uh, animal-based foods. Uh, and I was too, which we all had been. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit difficult, maybe, for some in the beginning to make that switch. But well, what's really interesting about that, if, if people will do it, stay with it, for some people do it immediately, and that's it, end of story, and they, they continue on. Um, they may be relying on other motivations as well, of course. But uh, if we stay with this kind of diet, if you will, for a month or two, then our taste preferences begin to change. It's really quite remarkable. And we get to a point where maybe, as I say, after a month or two, maybe some people a little more, whatever, you get to a point where these new foods with less oil and less sugar and you know, different kinds of foods, if you will, for many people, you get to a point where you say, wow, you look back at what you did before, you say, what in the world did I eat that stuff for before? And so it becomes a new world in many ways. It becomes a new world in more ways than one, but one of which is the fact that we tend to get rid of those addictions of sugar and oil and, uh, and salt. Uh, and so... The the uh, some people in my community are advocating no oil, no sugar, uh, if you will. Uh, and maybe sometimes inferring that we shouldn't even consume in, uh, plants that might be high in, in fat. I, I don't quite agree with that. Um, there are some plants that uh, are fairly high in fat, for example. Uh, nuts is a classical case. Uh, avocado, uh, maybe coconut. Um, and some of these uh, high-fat plant foods, as long as they're whole foods, that's the key. You know, we don't make a whole meal out of them, obviously, but uh, they can be part of a meal, a meal plan. And as long as they're that way, then what happens from a biological perspective is that the body is looking at all the, all these nutrients, of which there are hundreds of thousands of chemicals that can act in some way like that. Uh, we're consuming the whole food, and the body has the opportunity of then uh, choosing what to use and what not to use and sort of, in a sense, creating health for us. And so that's a different situation when the fat is in the whole food as opposed to what it might be when it's taken out and put into a bottle. That's not so good. Uh, so uh, those those things are fragments of food, <laughs> I, I like to say. The same thing applies to nutrient supplements. Taking the, the substance out of the plants that we think are responsible for the effect of plants, take them out and put them in a pill or use them, you know, put them in a bottle, whatever. That, that is not nutrition. That's not the kind of thing we're talking about. And so we can do without that and we can become accustomed to that taste. It's just, it's really great. Um, and you can see the benefits uh, health wise. The benefits are, are immense, are immense. And so. Yeah, that's a little longer so, story than I expected you to hear, but <laughs> that's okay. Well, you know, what you're saying really resonates with me, and I'm sure it resonates hopefully with the audience because the way I look at it is God puts all these whole foods in the ground and on trees, and then man starts to uh, um, play with it and it starts to extract things out of it, uh, which, you know, when you think about it, logically doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, so if God's putting these things, these whole foods into the ground in trees, that sounds like what we should be consuming for sure. Um, and as somebody who has, uh, you know, lived his entire life uh, not necessarily eating all the best things, but thinking that he was, uh, you know, thinking that if I eat, um, you know, grass-fed beef, that's going to be good for me. Or I'm hearing that, you know, if salmon is is uh, is not farm-raised, but it's uh, it's wild-caught, that's fine as well. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on on any kind of meat, chicken, and fish, and what it does to our bodies, and how we know about it, how we know what it does. Well, I, I tend to look at that uh, first and foremost from the scientific perspective as to what the evidence is, if you will. Uh, and quite frankly, there's no difference between the protein of grass-fed beef and feedlot beef. There's no difference. It's all the same protein. Uh, and that's one of the chief nutrients that causes the problem, the animal protein itself. So there's no difference. Um, there might be, you know, at least in theory, and we don't have really almost no evidence on this, but it has been suggested that grass-fed beef, for example, will be a little bit better. I mean, some of these sounds more reasonable 
you know, have pasture-fed animals or range-fed chickens, if you will. Uh, that's uh, that's part of nature, we th- we think. And uh, it might sound a little bit better to use that kind of food. Um, and I I just don't know of evidence to show, in fact, that that's better. Theoretically, I can buy into the idea maybe a little bit, but not really. I mean, it's, it's a minor, minor thing. And, and in any case, to uh, suggest that as a way to go for the future, you know, let's just use uh, range-fed or grass-fed um, animals. Um, that's not the that's not the future solution because if people still had the same desire for that kind of food going forward, uh, then we don't have enough land, not even close enough land, you know, to put those animals on it. So that's a false start to make that assumption, both scientifically, medically, and in terms of just simple economics. Um, and I, so. The, the, the protein that we use that sort of got me to work out to as far as our research is concerned, as I say, it's the same. And animal protein in general is basically the same, at least compared to plant protein. And I should add this, well, here's, here's the thought here that, um, that a lot of people wonder about. We can get all the protein we need. Protein is an essential nutrient. It's absolutely essential. But we can get all the protein we need from just plant foods. We do not need to consume animal foods to get protein. That's that's uh, that's one of the uh, bits of methodology that's been with us for a long time, uh, and uh, so yeah, I, I just as I say, I like to come back to the science, and we could have much longer discussion on this particular point. But uh, it, the, the grass-fed stuff is sounds nice. <laughs> I, I'd be more inclined to go along with that coming from a farm as I did. I can't. I really dislike rather intensely the whole factory farm idea that we've ended up with in our country. Uh, you know, where animals are sort of uh, put into these uh, large uh, uh, buildings and facilities, if you will, and just kept there for a relatively short part of their lives and then were slaughtered. And, and, and you know, the way we actually uh, have turned the agricultural system onto its head and concentrated in the form of factory farms I think it's a travesty. Mm. Um, and uh, there's all kinds of reasons to be concerned about that sort of thing because there's environmental issues you know, concerned with that, just consuming all that kind of meat, raising all that kind of land, raising all that kind of crops that you know, feed the animals. That's, that's another big story. Is, um, the, the factory farm business, or the way we have such an appetite for the consumption of these animal foods that we have to do that on such a grand scale just uh, serves the public's appetite. I mean, that's going to chase. That is getting us into some serious problems. Not, not the one, not the least of which is the effect on the environment. That's a very big issue too. Um, well, I start rearing, as you may know. I don't. Some of the listeners will be familiar with this, but uh, it's been estimated uh, now by some very serious organizations. And after some serious study, that the that the environmental changes that we're now experiencing, and they are very serious, um, I must add, I can't emphasize that enough, that um, the the chief cause of climate change is food. Wow, it's a livestock we consume. It's that simple. Um, you know how much of the total effect is attributed to livestock eating? It's obviously debatable, but it's generally agreed by those in the business. That's it. And so um, to solve our environmental problems, uh, we've got to connect it up with the food we eat. That's, that's critical. Um, and uh, we're doing some of that here now on the education. Some of that we, we have an online course, actually, that's done very well. It's called Plant-Based Nutrition. It's, we partner with Cornell University on that. People get a certificate out of it. Doctors can get 30 continuing medical education credits for that course. And we've had about 15,000 students now wow. in that course. But we're adding on, on now another uh, sort of certificate program having to do with the environment, you know, the environment and food. Uh, I'm not aware of any, anyone really doing that at the moment. And so we want to have that available, too, for people to, to access. It should be available within the year, for sure. And um, so... Coming back to the question concerning, you know, the the uh, consumption of animal foods, 
and our, our really keen desire to eat those foods. I'm one of those people. I, I sort of know what I'm talking about. And I said, this is, you think that's it? That's, that's, the, that's the best of your day. But in reality, uh, the science says, no, that's not the way to do it. For all sorts of different reasons. You know, environment being one, personal health being another. Um, you know, our, our heavy dependence on drugs to maintain, maintain health instead of food. That's another really big issue. Cost of health care, that's another huge issue. Um, we have the highest per capita cost of any country in the world, by far. Uh, and uh, we also use the most pharmaceuticals. So using all those pharmaceuticals is not making for us better health, period. It just simply isn't. Uh, in fact, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a diversion that's actually creating us from knowing what the truth really is. Uh, so... Um, this whole idea of trying to sit down and figure out what kind of food should I eat? You know, we all have our own impressions of what that should be. We know what we like and what we don't like. Uh, but we've got to turn to the science, too, and ask ourselves, you know, what, what are the facts? What are the facts? And we've got a lot of facts now that we can work with that tell us that perhaps one of the single most important things we can do in many different ways, a lot of important outcomes, just learn about why it is that people like myself and others, why, why we're saying that a whole food plant-based diet is the way to go. And we're, we've all become quite accustomed and familiar, getting more familiar with this story. And I've been in it for, it's evolved over a period of 60 some years, but um, it, it, the evidence is there. The evidence is there. And it's just something that people can do. And I hear from a lot of people who have serious problems. Maybe they've already had a heart attack. Maybe they have other kinds of problems. And um, gosh, they turn it around. So I'm talking about using these foods not just to prevent future problems, which is the domain, domain of preventive medicine. I'm talking about using these foods as a means of treatment, for crying out loud. And that's one area that is kind of controversial, I guess. A lot of people would find that a little bit shocking, especially people in the medical profession. But um, it is. It, this food thing um, is good for all of its old ages, both the genders, uh, nationalities, whatever you want to figure it. We're all human. And uh, it, it works in, in all of us, you know, essentially in the same way. We could tweak it here a little bit, you know, under some, under some circumstances, of course, but basically, the fundamental message is the same for all of us at all time. And it's also the message for, for our environment and for nature and our relationship with nature. So I get excited about it, as you can probably tell. Yes, I can. <laughs> That's the way it is. And, you know, it's interesting as you lead your book off with a quote, and a, and a very fascinating quote by Hippocrates. It says, he who does not know food, how can he understand the diseases of man. And I guess that's referencing uh, a lot of the uh, medical profession. And uh, actually, I've been uh, given advice by some of my doctors, even um, those who are integrative medicine people. And one in particular said to me that I should eat more eggs because it's a so-called superfood. And I guess an egg is not an actual animal. It's a byproduct of the animal. What's your take on eggs? Sure. Uh, yeah, eggs and dairy. Uh, they obviously are not directly uh, of the animal. They're from the animal, uh, but it can, we end up in the same place. Those foods have animal protein. In fact, I must tell you that in science for many, many years, we've sort of ranked different proteins for their activities of so doing this, that, and a few other things. And the protein of milk, casein, protein of uh, eggs, albumin, those two proteins are, are the highest rated in terms of their efficiency of, of uh, activity, if you will, if you put it that way. Uh, and so they're really super um, animal foods <laughs> with that protein. You know, also, the animal foods don't have all the other nutrients in them that plants do. So eggs and milk are the same. Some people used to describe milk as nothing more than liquid meat, one way to look at it. Uh, they're the byproducts of the animals, of course, uh, and we do not need that food any more than we do need, need their flesh. So it's part of the same game. I don't, 
In fact, I, I think dairy may be one of the more difficult problems of all of the animal products, one of the most difficult. And uh, coming from the dairy farm, I, I surely would never have thought I would have said that, but uh, it's the way it is. And uh, so we got to just find a way, you know, to get around that kind of food and solve some health problems. Uh, cost of health care, that's another one that, uh, uh, and presently, as you know, the, everybody knows that our enormous debate on on healthcare that we you know get so rank and so uh, involved in these days. People are, are, are you know, politicians on both sides of the political aisle, if you will, are talking about how to solve the problem and what's the best way to do it and so forth and so on. And neither side really knows this information. They don't. Uh, they, they're talking about uh, you know trying to get better health through use of generic drugs, for example, as opposed to prescription drugs. That's not, that's, not going to, that's not going to solve the problem. It's more affordable to do the wrong thing. And so it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, we should figure out ways to actually feel how, you know, learn how to be healthy so we don't need the drugs. And so that's a, that's a big cost. Uh, but then again, the, the huge, the, the larger cost in medical care is just for care and for people who unfortunately get to stages where they need a lot of intensive, you know, intensive care, especially older age. And I, I think oftentimes, I mean, this, this, uh, this lifestyle it kind of keeps people out of out of the hospitals, keeps them going. I know I had heart disease in my family. My dad had the, he was a farmer. He was in good shape and so forth and so on. But he had a heart attack at 62 and then mm. passed away at the 70 with the second attack and we surprised all of us. I didn't know much at that time about this sort of thing, but um, my, his brother, my uncle, died at 58 fatal attack and their father, my oh. grandfather, at, at uh, 73. So heart, I, I sort of saw this at this time as, well, I'm, I'm in that, <laughs> that DNA line, um, you know, and I don't particularly want to have an early heart attack like that. Uh, and so, um, I, that's one of my motivations in that plus on my wife's side, her mother, but I'm 84 now and still in good health and I don't take any drugs, no supplements, nothing. You sound like you're 34. (laughs) Well, I I, I doubt that. (laughs) No, your your energy and and, and your passion for what you do, um, is, is astounding and it comes through very clear. Well, well, I'm a case of one, but then again, uh, I know a lot of cases of one, <laughs> you know, and, and it started, you know, those numbers start to stack up. Uh, we have a family of uh, five children grown, plus 11 grandchildren, some spouses, and there's 22 of us all together, and 100% of us do this. So wow. once you get onto it and there's some commitment to it, that's the way it works. We don't use drugs. We don't use supplements, none of that sort of stuff. Wow. So... Well, you are a, a incredible inspiration and testimony for what plant-based um, diets can do. And the whole idea of using food as medicine is revolutionary and incredible because so many of us, we go to our doctors and we see that white lab coat and we think they're God. <laughs> so if they're giving us a pill yeah. and a prescription, you know, we're, we're buying into that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I, uh... Yep, go ahead. We only have about a minute and a half, but please. If, if, I, can just, if I can just put in a plug for a couple of things. Please, go ahead. Uh, well, one is our online course. Um, it's called nutritionstudies.org. Uh, that's a, that's a, a kind of a unique course of its kind, anyone interested in that. Uh, and then uh, some of our children, all of our family seem like me or Bob, but just me. My uh, oldest son did the film Plant Pure Nation and now has organized a nationwide program of wellness groups. It's kind of exciting. Um, it, was, uh, it goes on the label Healing America Together. Uh, that's what dot com. Uh, my younger son is a medical physician at Rochester doing research now and some very exciting new research on diet and cancer. And our daughter is just very much involved in this. <laughs> we, we've got a lot of us doing things and, and, uh, I could talk about those programs all day long, but that's kind of fun. Well, I want to thank you so much because you have absolutely 100% convinced me, uh, and I'm a, a one-month vegan, believe it or not. <laughs> Only a month. Oh, Dr. Right. Ed- oh, wow. 
<laughs> so I want to thank you so much because uh, yeah. not only am I going to be one month, but your uh, interview today has convinced me to do it for an entire lifetime. So thank you very much, Dr. Campbell, for being on the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners, and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.